0: I'll introduce the topic. Uh, as Ned said, we're looking more at the Trinity, and, and it's not that Doug didn't do a good job, it's that there's just so much that can be covered, uh, so much there is to talk about, it's impossible to fill it up in just one message. I'm not going to be able to finish the job. Uh, it's kind of like, and what we're really going to be doing is not really looking too closely because we just don't have the time to do it. The study of the Trinity, well, it's kind of like what we did this morning. It's kind of like taking a bird's eye view of the Trinity, but we only got about an hour into the plane ride, and there's still hours and hours worth of country that we still didn't see, and we're just continuing that plane ride of more of a bird's eye view of that, of the Trinity, and uh, just uh, looking further, looking beyond. All right, Um, let me get my PowerPoint pulled up. There we go. Nope, wrong one. There we go. Okay, the Trinity. And all that being said, I handed out a slideshow so you can follow along in that. You can take notes if you like. Uh, I can almost guarantee we're not going to get all the way through it, but we will uh, do our best with the time we have, about 20, 25 minutes, to get through a good chunk of it. All right, in review, this is uh, continuing on our Statement of Faith. This morning, we looked at uh, this point in the Statement of Faith. We believe there is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit passages some of the passages we looked at this morning Matthew 28 verse 19 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14 as Doug had uh, told us this morning Trinity it's not a word that's found in the Bible but it is a word that is used to describe the reality that we find in the Bible the fact that there is one God whose being is shared by three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we use the word Trinity because it's a little quicker than saying one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. So that's uh, really why we use that word, but it's describing that reality. Each is not part of God, but they share the whole being of God. And here's an illustration that really helps us to understand the Trinity, recognizing the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and yet each one is God. Uh, So this can help us give us an understanding. Uh, Another uh, thing to keep in mind uh, that'll help us in uh, looking at more evidence of the Trinity, uh, more proof of the Trinity, is having an understanding of that divine name Yahweh. Doug brought it up this morning, this is the personal name of Israel's covenant, God, in the Old Testament. And that word Yahweh, uh, the name of God, is sometimes called the Tetragrammaton. Uh, that's, that's what the really smart scholarly people say. Uh, we just say the name of God. We just say Yahweh. It's a lot easier. Um, but uh, uh, from one uh, resource says this. The name Yahweh reveals God's nature in the highest and fullest sense possible. It includes or presupposes the meaning of the other names of God. Yahweh particularly stresses the absolute faithfulness of God. Yahweh, then, is the name par excellence of Israel's God. As Yahweh, he is a faithful covenant God who, having given his word of love and life, keeps that word by bestowing love and life abundantly on his own. And out of fear of using that, uh, or misusing that divine name, uh, we see that the translators of the Old Testament would substitute the name Lord for Yahweh. We don't. Most of our Bibles, when we read the Old Testament, and our Old Testaments follow that uh, that same pattern. We don't really run into the name Yahweh every so often. The King James we might run into Jehovah, but usually we'll see throughout our own New Testament or our own Old Testament the word Lord, but it'll be in all caps. And it's kind of set apart, they're pretty easy to spot out, and that is signifying that divine name, Yahweh. Uh, And like I said, our English translations follow that practice. And this, something that's important to recognize is this is a name that is used exclusively of Yahweh. Uh, There's no one else other than Yahweh, the God of Israel, who can be called Yahweh, Right? There are things and people in the Old and New Testament that are called God. Right, Mo, God said to Moses, you shall be as God before Pharaoh. Right? Uh, we also see that uh, God sometimes u- is used to, dis- uh, to name heavenly beings. But that word Yahweh is unique to God alone. Uh, and we see a hint of this in Psalm uh, 83 verse 17. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, your name is Yahweh, are most high over all the earth. Uh, The one God, and the Trinity, like I said, one God, three persons, the one God uh, is taught throughout the Old Testament. We looked at a number of these passages, with the central one perhaps being Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And this is called the Shema. This is something that the people of Israel would recite continually. Uh, the, the foundation of the worship of the one true God is recognizing Yahweh is God, there is one God. Uh, a couple other places in the Old Testament that teach the oneness of God, another great famous passage, Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. God Being God, being deity, is exclusive to Yahweh alone. There's no one else who can fall into that category. There is one God. And this uh, teaching is continued in the New Testament. Jesus reaffirms that Shema, that saying of the people of Israel. When he is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Uh, The foremost commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he continues, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, Jesus teaches that there is one God. This is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 1 Corinthians Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, that there is no God but one. These things that lay claim to being God, these idols, they are not God, they do not fall into the category of the one true God. And similarly, James teaches, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So we see the reality of the one true God in the, in the Bible. But we also see the reality at the same time of a plurality within that one being of God, the three persons. And though the Old Testament doesn't explicitly lay it out, uh, though a lot of this was still hidden in the Old Testament, we even see uh, hints of this Uh, In the earliest book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and Doug highlighted a couple of these things. God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Uh, Similarly, man has become like one of us. Uh, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. Another interesting passage is in Genesis chapter 19, verse 24, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where we read, and Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire, from Yahweh out of heaven. So what do we see? Yahweh at Sodom and Gomorrah, raining down fire from Yahweh in heaven. And remember, there is one God, there is one Yahweh. Uh, Continued hints at the plurality of the persons in the Old Testament. Uh, Speaking of the Messiah, we read in Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, and this is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. Your throne, O God, and this is God speaking, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, and remember who he's talking to, God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. Another place. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, have dominion in the midst of your enemies. So here we have Yahweh talking to someone who David calls his Lord and Jesus will make the point during his ministry. How is it that if uh, the Messiah is the son of David, that David then calls him his Lord? Another hint that we see in the Old Testament is this: the appearance of this figure, the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. The word angel itself has the most basic meaning of messenger, right? Uh, we don't really use that word angel for messenger. We recognize that it's mostly used to describe these divine beings. But really the, the main thrust of that word angel is messenger. And we see this messenger, this angel from Yahweh, appearing in multiple places throughout the Old Testament. And this, main, this messenger of Yahweh, this angel of Yahweh, is also called Yahweh is also called God he when he speaks it is God speaking uh, a, gr- a great place to find this is in Exodus chapter 3 verses 2 and 6 where uh, 2 through 6 where the angel of Yahweh appears to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush so who's in the burning bush the angel of Yahweh And Moses goes and looks, and Yahweh saw that he turned aside. So God called to him from the midst of the bush. Now, who was in the bush? The angel of Yahweh, who called out from the bush. God called out from the bush. And what does the one who called out out from the bush say? I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So the angel of Yahweh is in the bush. God is in the bush. Similarly, we see this in uh, Judges chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. Gideon saw that the angel of Yahweh had befe- uh, appeared before him. So he said, Alas, O Lord Yahweh, from now on, uh, for now I have seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. And then Yahweh said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. And these aren't the only places, but like I said, we don't have a tremendous amount of time. The angel of the Lord appears in a number of places throughout Genesis. Uh, he is the one who wrestles with Jacob, touches him on the hip, uh, calls him Israel. Uh, and what does, what's the response of Jacob? I have seen God and lived, right? Uh, he sees the angel of the Lord, he sees the Lord. Uh, we see him appear in other places in Judges before Samson's parents. They say, oh, no, it's the angel of the Lord. Uh, We've seen God, and now we're going to die. And that's usually the response. So the angel of the Lord uh, is called God. But who is the one who sends the messenger of the Lord? Well, the Lord sends the messenger of the Lord. Uh, So, again, these hints at the plurality of the persons even in the Old Testament. We have places in the, moving on to the New Testament, we have places in the New Testament where Jesus is explicitly called God, Uh one of the, you know, the popular belief is that Jesus, well, he was just a good teacher, but he was not God. No one really thought Jesus was God. His earliest fo- the earliest followers didn't think Jesus was God. That's just something that developed hundreds and hundreds of years later at the Council of Nicaea. But here in the Gospels and in the New Testament, we see that the earliest Christians called Jesus God. We see he's called God in John. In the beginning was the word The Word was with God. The Word was God. And we read on and we discover the identity of the Word is Jesus. Uh, Later on in... there's a textual variant here. Some translations will read no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. But some of the earliest manuscripts we find actually says the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So what do we have? No one has seen God at any time, and yet we have the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father who has revealed him. At the end of the gospel, what is Thomas' response to seeing the raised Jesus my Lord and my God. The Apostle Paul calls him God. In Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, uh, Paul is talking about how he himself wishes he could be separated from Christ for the sake of his kinsmen. And he goes on and be, describes Christ in this way the Christ according to the flesh, so Christ according to the flesh, but then speaking of the same person who is God over all. Blessed forever. So according to the flesh, he is Christ. But overall, we recognize he is God. Similarly, in a letter to Titus, Paul calls Jesus our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's another place uh, that I think is kind of interesting where the Apostle Paul is leaving the Ephesians, and he is warning them, "...be on guard for yourself and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood." Now, whose blood was shed to purchase the church? the blood of Jesus. It was not the Father who was crucified. It was not the Spirit who was crucified, but the Son. And yet Paul has no issue saying that God purchased the church with his own blood. We see more. The Apostle Peter also calls Jesus uh, our God and Savior. The author of Hebrews quoting psalm, uh, the psalm from earlier, says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. So who is God, according to the author of Hebrews here? The Son. I thought I had one more in there. Anyway, uh, uh, more hints. Re- re- remember uh, that Old Testament name, Yahweh, that we see throughout the Old Testament, in all caps, Lord. Well, there's a number of passages in that Old Testament speaking of Yahweh, the God of Israel, uh, remember, only one Yahweh, the God of Israel, that title cannot be applied to anyone else. But we see that and there's a number of places where these Old Testament passages speaking about Yahweh are applied to Jesus. And we see this really at the very beginning of the Gospels. I was uh, in our uh, yearly Bible reading. We started up through Mark again. And j- in the, just the first few verses of Mark, you see it almost leaping off the page, the fact that Mark recognizes Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh. And let me show you how. Uh, Malachi says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, right? And remember who is speaking. Yahweh is speaking. Uh, Similarly, Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice is calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So what is the expectation that Yahweh is going to come? And what is it that we read right at the beginning of the gospel according to Mark? Well, we get direct quotations from Malachi and Isaiah. And then who comes along preparing the way? John the Baptist. And who is he preparing the way for? Jesus. What does John say? I am a voice, uh, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And that's drawn directly out of uh, Isaiah 40, make straight the way for Yahweh. And remember, uh, he's quoting from the Greek Old Testament. What they did was they would put kurios, the word Lord, in the place of Yahweh, out of fear of misusing the divine name. So Lord, in many cases, and I would say in pretty much every case that the word Lord is said of Jesus, it is that divine name that is in mind. When Jesus is called Lord, it is saying a lot more than simply, oh, he's, a, he's an earthly king. No, they have the background of that uh, name behind the word Lord in mind as they apply it to Jesus. Another place we see it, Isaiah 45, verses 21 through 23, it says a number of things... it is, the, it is the Lord talking, it is Yahweh speaking. He says, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I've sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. And then he goes on, that to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance, right? Every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance to Yahweh. But what does the Apostle Paul do in the book of Philippians? And sorry, I didn't put that reference up there. It's uh, Philippians chapter 2. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, ripping those words straight out of the Old Testament, those words that are attributed to Yahweh alone, and applying them to the Lord Jesus. Another great place is in Zechariah chapter 12. Remember, this is Yahweh speaking. And then he goes on in verse 12 saying, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will look on me whom they have pierced. So who is it that is pierced in Zechariah chapter 12? Yahweh. Well, how is it that Yahweh can be pierced? Well, Yahweh takes on human flesh, and he offers himself as a sin offering, and we see this scripture is fulfilled in Jesus at the crucifixion when that spear is thrust into his side. They shall look on him whom they have pierced, and Revelation uh, speaks of it as well. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, another place that Jesus is called God, who who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Another place. And uh, something uh, I I had seen uh, somewhere that the Jehovah's Witnesses are out and about. And these next two are, if you remember anything from this, you need to remember these next two in case... uh, Nice, good-looking young men in suits show up at the door. Now, make sure they're in suits and not just white shirts and ties. Uh, Those are the Mormons. Uh, uh, Not that this isn't relevant to the Mormons as well, but uh, Jehovah's Witnesses explicitly deny the deity of Christ. They deny that Jesus is Jehovah. They say, no, there's one Jehovah, and then it's not Jesus. That doesn't make any sense to them. Uh, But here's something you can do when the Jehovah's Witness comes to the door. Say, all right, uh, let's turn to Isaiah chapter six. Uh, In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And we see uh, the uh, seraphim are above him singing, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we see Isaiah sees the glory of Yahweh. But then when we turn to John chapter 12, uh, we, see, we read, for this reason they could not believe. So those who did not believe in Jesus did not believe the signs. For Isaiah, oh, the person who we just saw, uh, Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in return, and I heal them. And these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. Now, if you look back in the context of John, it's speaking about Jesus. So whose glory did Isaiah see? Well, he saw the glory of Jesus. And when did he see the glory of Jesus? Well, Isaiah chapter 6. If you were to ask Isaiah, whose glory did you see? He would say, I saw the glory of Yahweh. If you were to ask John, who did Isaiah see? Whose glory did Isaiah behold? John would respond, he saw the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Another one, this is the second one to keep in mind uh, when the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking at the door. And in fact, this might even be the first place that you go with them. Tell the Jehovah's Witness, okay, uh, you believe there's one God? You believe there's one Yahweh? I believe that too. And let me demonstrate what I believe. Let's turn to Psalm 102. We turn to Psalm 102, we see it as a psalm addressed to Yahweh, a cry of help to Yahweh. And at the very end of that psalm, we read, of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you will remain, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. And you can ask them, who is this describing? <laughs> well, of course, it's describing Jehovah. There's no one else that, could, that this could apply to. Only Jehovah is without change. Only Jehovah is eternal. Only Jehovah... Uh, well, after you've established that this is could only be speaking of Jehovah, no one else, we turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, and verse 8. Uh, start, And you can start in verse 8. And we see that the author of Hebrews is talking about the Son. And of the Son, he says, and there's another quotation, but the quotations keep coming. And one of the quotations is from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. So of the Son, he says, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. The exact same psalm, but what's the author of Hebrews doing? He's saying, this is speaking of the Son. This is speaking of Jesus. All right, deity of the Holy Spirit. We see that the Holy Spirit is called Lord and God. Uh, during uh, when Ananias and Sapphire had lied, what does Peter say to them? Uh, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And at the end he concludes, you have not lied to men, but to God. So to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Similarly, we read in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, so God, so we're the sanctuary of God, who dwells in us? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. God will destroy him, for the sanctuary of God is holy, and that is what you are. Uh, Who was the one who resided in the temple during the days of Israel when there was a temple? Well, God resided in the temple, does he not? Now, who dwells in the temple of God, which is the church, which is believers now? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, thus, is God. Uh, now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Holy Spirit, similarly recognized as Yahweh. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15, we read, And the Holy Spirit testifies to us, For, after saying, and then he quotes from Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. And who is the one speaking in Jeremiah chapter 31? Well, it is Yahweh speaking, but the author of Hebrews says it is the Holy Spirit. Again, three persons, one God, one being of Yahweh. Uh, The words of Yahweh are attributed to the Holy Spirit. Uh, At the end of the book of Acts, we read, Uh, When they disagreed with one another, they began leaving, and Paul had spoken the word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your forefathers, and then he gives another quotation of Isaiah chapter 6, which we were just in. So, uh, tell this people, keep listening, but do not perceive, keep looking, and do not understand. Again, who is speaking? Well, Yahweh is speaking, and the Apostle Paul says it is the Holy Spirit who is speaking through Isaiah the prophet. Some testimony of the early church. Uh, This did not just come up during the time of the Reformation. This understanding did not just come up at the Council of Nicaea or anything like that, but this has been the consistent belief of the church from the very beginning. I've shown you that the New Testament believers believed in the doctrine of the Trinity, and the uh, uh, the, the immediate successors likewise believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. We see Ignatius of Antioch, someone who lived within the lifetime of the apostles, writing all kinds of things regarding the Trinity. He calls Jesus Christ our God. He calls God the Father God. Uh, We have a wonderful Trinitarian passage regarding salvation, from Ignatius of Antioch. And he says, ye are stones of a temple which were prepared beforehand for a building of God the Father being hoisted up to the heights through the engine of Jesus Christ, which is the cross, and using for a rope the Holy Spirit. So what's he saying? All three persons of the Trinity working and bringing about our salvation and building us up together. And then he uh, makes a statement regarding God appearing in the likeness of man unto the newness of everlasting life. Another one, Melito of Sardis, and again, just because we're running short of time, we're not going to dwell too long. But again, calling Jesus God, saying it is God who they put to death when they slew Jesus on the cross. Uh, The Council of Nicaea has a great, uh, what we call the Nicene Creed, outlaying the fact that there is one God, the Father, Uh, the Son and the Holy Spirit uh, laying these things out, saying that this is what we believe, this is what the scriptures teach, this is what the church has ever believed. And uh, we can... uh uh, we can look at some of the the false teachings that they were countering because there are false understandings of the Trinity. There are false understandings of who God is and they come from denying one of those aspects of the Trinity that there is one God shared coequally and co-eternally by three divine persons. And this will be the last section that we go over very quickly. Uh, So again, the true understanding of the Trinity, there is only one God. There's only one substance of God, three divine persons, three subsistences. Uh, The persons are co-equal and co-eternal. They share the one being of God. The first uh, false understanding of the Trinity is uh, what is called modalism. Modalism is the denial that the one God exists as three distinct persons or Uh, subsistences, right? So modalism will affirm, oh yes, there is one God. They will affirm, oh yes, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But what they will deny is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Rather, they will say that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, well, those are just three different modes of God. Sometimes God is the Son, Sometimes God is a Father. Sometimes he is a Holy Spirit. God is all three of those at once. But God remains only one person. Uh, uh, the, here's an anal- and here's an analogy that uh, some people may even use that is actually modalistic. Have you ever heard this analogy of someone trying to explain the Trinity? They'll say, well, God is uh, God being three in one is kind of like how uh, H2O can be Uh, solid, liquid, and gas. right? It can be water, it can be ice, or it can be steam. And that's kind of like what God is. Well, that's not actually an, uh, an accurate representation of the Trinity. That's actually a modalistic teaching of the Trinity. Because the problem is H2O cannot be solid, liquid, and gas all at the same time. So that's something we need to be careful, right? And we can sometimes mix things up. We may sometimes say something along the lines of, oh, uh, God the Father, I'm so thankful you came down and got crucified for me. No, 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 no. Uh, Distinct persons, the Father is not the Son, right? So we need to keep these things in mind. Uh, We see the interaction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament. That's not just one person talking to himself, right? It's not just like a, a guy holding up two puppets and having those puppets talk to each other. That's not what we see in the scriptures. Another false understanding of the Trinity is subordinationism, or another way you can uh, name it is Arianism. And uh, what Arianism is, it's, it's kind of like an overcorrection of modalism. So it sees modalism and says, ah, you got it all wrong. Uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit are, are distinct from one another. But the problem is, uh, while subordination aff- subordinationism affirms the distinction of the persons, it denies the deity of the Son and the Spirit. They'll say, yes, there's only one God, and it's God the Father. The Son is not God, at least not in the same way that the Father is God. The Spirit is not God, at least not in the same way that the Father is God. And they may even call Jesus God. You can go up to a a, a subordinationist or, or an Arian and say, Jesus is God. And they say, oh, yes, Jesus is God. But in the back of their mind, they're saying, but not in the same way that the Father is God. Uh, This heresy denies that the Son and the Spirit share the same nature as the Father, Uh, and in fact teaches that the Son and the Spirit are created beings. Uh, The ancient form of this heresy was called Arianism, Uh, but it's still around today in the form of Jehovah's Witnesses, and I had already mentioned them. They're just modern rehashes of this old heresy that denies the deity of Christ. All right, here's another one, partialism. This is the belief that each of the divine persons together make up the one being of God. So it affirms the distinction and the deity of the persons, but it denies the full deity of the persons. So uh, God the Father is not God entirely in and of himself. God the Father is only part of God. And the Spirit is only part of God, and the Son is only part of God. And altogether, they make up the one being of God. That's the teaching of partialism. But in this view, each person is only partly God. Jesus is not completely God. He's only partly God. Uh, And uh, this divides God up into parts, so that none of the divine beings are wholly themselves God. You might have heard the illustration of the Trinity of the three-leaf clover, right? Uh, Well, God is like a three-leaf clover. There's only one clover, but there's three leaves on it. And each of those three leaves is uh, a person of the Trinity. Bad illustration. Don't use it. And I I hope uh, we haven't been using these illustrations, and I'm not just blowing them all away for you. But uh, again, this is a bad analogy, and we shouldn't use it for the Trinity. A similar analogy is the egg, have you ever heard or even used? Uh, well, the Trinity is kind of like an egg, right? There's the shell, uh, there's the yolk, there's the egg white, and it all makes up the egg. Well, that's not a good explanation of the Trinity. That's a good explanation of partialism, which is not what the Bible teaches. And then finally, there's Tritheism. This is the view that there are actually three gods the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It teaches that they are separate beings. It denies that there is truly one God. A a modern incarnation of tritheism is actually Mormonism. Now Mormons will run around saying, oh yes, we believe that there's one God. But when you start pressing them, they'll say, well yeah, uh, there's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and they're actually separate beings from one another, but they work so closely together that we may as well just call them one God, and that's what they'll say. And uh, they believe that there's more than just three gods, Uh, but at least as far as this world is concerned, that is what they teach. Uh, And again, the problem with tritheism is that it completely obliterates the consistent teaching of Scripture that there is only one God. Here's a tool that can Uh, help us stay within orthodoxy, stay within what the Bible teaches. If we, and and to help us understand these different heresies, when we deny a certain side of the doctrine of the Trinity, we fall into the heresy that is at the opposite point. So if I deny that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, well, I'm going to fall into subordinationism. uh, And you can see that. But that's all that we're going to have time for. Maybe we can look at this one at a later time. Um, uh, and like I said, bird's-eye view of only a small portion of the map, but I hope uh, maybe it cleared up some understandings in our mind, and it really does just show us. uh, The scriptures are clear on it, but because of our own human understanding, it is very easy to fall away from that truth, but let's go to the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we've had to consider who you are, consider uh, the one being of God shared by three divine persons. Uh, we are thankful for the revelation that you give us in Scripture of this reality, uh, though we can't quite wrap our arms all the way around it. I pray that as we uh, go about our day and week, that we would continue to reflect on who you are, who you have revealed yourself as, and what you have done in the three divine persons in bringing about our salvation. I pray you bless the rest of our hour of prayer, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.